tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed. And a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Aaron, open your mind. Drink. Good morning, Swarm, and welcome to that manly, manly intro to this manly, manly show, <laughs> guys. You know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. I'm here to rock. rock. That's right. Joining me uh, across the way to know him is to love him. He's part of the hit new show. We don't smoke the same. Xavier Guerrero. What's up? See, now that rock was manly. Yeah, that was a manly rock. And on the ones and twos, the silent assassin, he jumps in. And when he speaks, his words matter. Johnny Woodward, a.k.a. Jay Nice. <laughs> What's up, man? What's up, Jay Nice? How are you? Um, I am stoked about the guest today. Yeah, we have a great yeah, guest, and we're show. very excited to have him on, and it's going to be uh, an all-time great. I'm going to kill this interview, do nothing bad, and not make any mistakes. I think it's going to start perfectly. <laughs> it's going to start perfect, Best perfect start timing, ever. perfect jokes, perfect everything. You called them the right thing. Yeah, it's going to be the best <laughs> ever. I will shine. And not have to save the interview. Shine bright Three like a diamond. Okay. <laughs> totally. But guys, listen, uh, even though it's snowing where you're probably living, I will be coming and visiting people because I'm like, you know, the post office. I come no matter sleet, snow, rain, or whatever, and I will be live in Raleigh. This weekend at Good Nights with Johnny Woodard will be there. Jay Nice will be there. His aunt, her black boyfriend, with uh, my good friend, John Toll. Are you going to be okay with another John on the show? Is that some weird shit? I'm not a John. I'm a Johnny. Okay, we got John. Are you doing the five? Full five? What's that? Full five over there? Full fucking five. I, no, I'm not. I don't. Johnny will be about. up on stage no. right after Jessica Wellington. She'll be going up first. Johnny, Jay Nice, and John told them myself. So come hang out. <laughs> I know you're going to be angry. I don't have shirts. They just, they're like, you got to sell outside. I'm, I, I just, I'm not going outside to sell shirts. I'm sorry. I would love to bring shirts. I would love to bring some nice shirts to you. It just can't help in this time. But I will be doing meet and greets. So I will meet you and I will tell you how much I love you. Okay, so please come hang out. Uh, then the 1st of March, and you can get these dates very soon. Uh, okay, I'll get into it. But March uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th, I am at the Dojo of Comedy in Morris Plains, uh, New Jersey. And then on the 10th, I'm at Float Fest in Texas. As long as it's thaw, I will be there. Go to floatfest.com, and you will see what we're talking about. Come join us. That's a free show, so if you're near, nearby, just show up. Yeah. Show up. Bring your tent. Bring your RV. Come get weird. I have a feeling it's going to be weird, and that's what I'm all about, because these crypto pirates are, are fun, wacky, wacky people, wackadoodles. 
wackadoodles. So that's that. Uh, my website's finally up, guys. My date should be up by the time you hear this, hopefully. Go to samtriplee.com. You're going to be able to get all of your uh, tinfoil hat videos that you could ever want to see. They will all be there. Go to, uh, again, samtriplee.com. Uh, you're going to be able to get the Tim Fall Hat Patreon there. And Zero will be available there. We're working on everything. I'm trying to get all the different shows there. So, uh, But you get all my stuff. You get Tim Fall Hat, Broken Sim, Cash Daddies, uh, Punch Drunk. The Union. The Union of the Unwanted. They'll all be there. So, you, you I mean, because you guys know, I, I just got, I literally just got a ding from YouTube. On an animation that is roughly eight years old. And they're like, yeah, we're digging it for this. They want it. Listen, YouTube wants YouTube to be the mass singer. There's nothing we can do about that. So we got to pull it off. You can find it on Rumble. You can find it on Rockfin. You can find it on uh, Odyssey. And you can find it on samtriplee.com. Go check that out. You can find my spiritual show, which is available at rockfin.com right now. It is called Zero. You can also find my uh, my new sports show called The Greatest of All Time Sports Talk. Rockfan.com slash greatest. Greatest. That's goats. Go check that out. I'm sure Xavier will get on there someday. Oh, yeah. We, got, we don't smoke Xavier the doesn't like words. money. He just likes to live yeah. in the burial chasing chickens. <laughs> okay? That's what that's at. Anything else? Oh, T-shirts. T-shirts are moving, man. Go to tinfallhattshirts.com or you can go to samtriplee.com and click shop. The okay. new one is limited edition, only 100, and I'm pretty sure We've we're already almost sold halfway off. there. Yeah, yeah so. we're almost halfway there. Get on it, it is fisting the machine. Tinfall has for the people. Then we have Trumpzilla. No, that was no, sold out. Gone. And then we have, um, what was the other one that's uh, brand new? The fighting, Fight for Charity. Yeah, Fight for Charity, me fighting uh, Bill Gates, all that and more. If you want uh, to hear the new Broken Sam early and unedited, no ads, uh, patreon.com slash broken simulation. Yeah, man. Anything else, guys? I feel like we nailed that. Um, that's it, bro. Guys, this episode, we have Hamilton Morris from Hamilton's Pharmacopia. Pharmacopia. Uh, man, it is a great episode. A lot of fun. He's a good dude. We had a great time, and it's not at any point shaky. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. All right, let's get into it. Uh, very rarely am I super giddy to talk to a guest, but this time I am very excited to talk to this guy. Uh, once in a while, a show comes on that kind of, um, you know, really like hits me hard. And like, uh, and I, I, it makes me believe that entertainment still has a chance. I had the uh, same feeling when I watched Duncan Trussell's um, Midnight Gospel, and uh, I felt it when I watched this guy's show. Uh, his show is on Vice. He is the director of Hamilton's Pharmacopia, and yes, I nailed it. Please welcome Hamilton Morris. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I, I, I can't express enough how much I love your show and, I, I, and how, how, how it inspires me to think that television still has a chance to, to put out quality stuff that, help, that is really, really great, 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 great food for your brain, for your soul, for your spirit, man. So uh, thanks for doing your show. I love it. Yeah, thank you. I'm not sure that it does have a chance, uh, but <laughs> I am glad that you think that. 
Well, you know, I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I I kind of gave up on uh, Vice uh, a, a while ago. I just just what it was, what it is. But when I saw your show, mm-hmm. and I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I know you got a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Sure. Yeah, you can. You can listen to it on Patreon. It's a chemistry podcast that's in line with a lot of what I did on my show. I interview chemists who synthesize unusual psychoactive drugs or do other unusual work with chemistry and uh, police officers who do law enforcement related to psychoactive drugs. That's been the emphasis thus far. That is awesome. That is awesome. So where do we begin? Where does the Hamilton Morris story start? How do we, where do you start and how do you end up with a show doing drugs mm. well, i wouldn't call it a show doing drugs as a former addict i go man this guy beat the system so <laughs> i'm just telling you where i'm coming from so uh-huh. please don't take any uh, offense to that i am a huge fan uh so where's your story start and johnny i'm sorry i know you're getting uncomfortable because you love the show uh-huh. so much yeah. Well, yeah. Good. I mean, the reason that I even say that is I don't think there's anything wrong with doing drugs. I think I agree. it's totally fine, of course. Um, but that's not what the show is. And if that were the show, it would be much, much easier. That I think that some people have this idea that that is what the show is, is that it's consuming drugs. And there are many, many, many shows where people or you know, YouTube channels, things where people just consume drugs. That's actually fairly common and not very hard to do at all. If that were the show, it would have been easy. Um, what made, and it, I think it would have been a lot less interesting if that were the show. A lot of people think that's the show because there's something so, I don't know why there's something about, um, either honest discussion of psychoactive drug consumption or, um, I guess open portrayal of psychoactive drug consumption that is like shocking to people so much so that even if it's a minute, portion of the show i mean i think in total my own consumption of psychoactive drugs represents something around two or three percent of the total runtime of the entire series but even though it's this vanishingly small fraction of the show many people will not only only discuss that part of the show they somehow seem to think that is the entirety of the show and that part is yeah like i said it's easy what's difficult is you know getting into these unusual labs spend going to these dangerous places, traveling to all these unusual locations, finding people who are willing to talk about these things, whether they're illegal or they represent um, a tradition that has never been previously documented. So that's the, the hard part. Um, and that's also the hard part to sell. You know, if it, again, if it were just consumption of drugs, that would be, I think, pretty easy. Um, what is hard is the legally questionable aspects of depicting the manufacture of controlled substances. I would, in terms of how do you do it? It's there's tons and people always ask me, they're like, how on earth did you do this? Uh, There's enormous, enormous numbers of shows about drugs all over the place. It's not uncommon at all. The only thing that is uncommon is I think that my show happens to be somewhat good. And most of the other ones are bad (laughs) because they're, they are, uh, made by people that don't know about the subject. I mean, the bar is very, very low. When I say that my show is good, it's not, I don't even feel like there's any arrogance in saying that because just relatively speaking, everything else is so terrible. It's, you know, like drugs, Inc. type stuff that is just, you know, it's foolish. It's mm-hmm. 
thoughtless. It, there's no care taken to ensure that it's factually accurate or that it's, you know, has some kind of constructive contribution to people's understanding of the subject. I would agree with all everything you've said, and I, that's why I do enjoy the show. I yeah. do enjoy the analytical uh, look into everything that is going on, the story behind it, the history of it. I, I love all that. Where where does your story start? I, uh, were you always inquisitive about stuff like this? Is this something that yeah. what yeah, inspires I, I, all this? Again, I mean, I think that's I think many people are very interested in drugs. And I think I'm sort of surprised by when you, when you consider what an enormous role drugs have in not only our culture, but pretty much every culture, how many people's lives have been altered fundamentally by drugs, what a, whether they've been saved by drugs or whether they feel that their lives were changed for the worse by drugs or whatever. And if not you, someone, you know, someone in your family. And then you think about how little people still know about this subject, despite it being tremendously important to everything that surrounds them. So I just wanted to really get into it and to cultivate a holistic understanding of the subject via chemistry, you know, the, the drug policy, legal aspects of it, historical aspects, anthropological aspects, and to try to consolidate as much information as possible to help both myself and other people understand how we got to where we are in terms of uh, all the, you know, amazing scientific discoveries and what we know about drugs, but also all of the backward, foolish attitudes that we have. And of course, prohibition, um, but how did I do it? You know, it's, it's, I studied neuroscience and anthropology and chemistry in college and I uh, was interested in writing about it. And there was, because it, like I said, it's actually not hard to, to do things about drugs at all. Um, as soon as I started, you know, proposing these stories, it was easy to get them published because people find the subject totally fascinating. And then I think that there was some, uh, people were receptive to the stories because they realized that there was something kind of um, unusual about the way that they were being told. And it started out very small. You know, I, I made the first uh, episode of my series when I was 21 and I was still in college. And I, I think I, I shot it over spring break probably. And then, you know, made it, it was shot with two people and it was done almost as a, almost as a joke, really, you know, I didn't think anyone would watch it. And I certainly, this was before things even went on YouTube. And then, um, and then it was successful enough that I made another and another and another, and then it became a TV show. Guys, I want to tell you about our good friends at Blue Chew. That's right. Blue for boner. Okay. Hardcore American loving boners. All right. Johnny loves it. XG loves it. He loves it when it's a blue chulotos chulotos. Okay. <laughs> he loves it all. I love blue chew. You love blue chew. We all love blue chew. Okay. Blue chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and sales, but in a chewable form at a fraction of the cost. Okay. Blue chew tablets help men achieve Harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of ED. Okay, Blue Chew is an on, is an online prescription service. Okay, no visits to the doctor's office, awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. That is the worst. 
when you're waiting near a hot chick, you're like, what is she coming for? And then she's like, oh, my God. You're getting boner pills? You can't get rock hard? I go, I'll get rock hard to win, baby. But you know what? <laughs> Bluetooth makes me just a little harder. My shaker rocks when I got on Bluetooth, right? Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? You know about? I use the 45 milligram, not 30. I go hard. That guy goes hard. I go hard. You got to go hard. It. Johnny, what do you it. do with your lady? Do you, what do you do? Nope. Yeah, that's right. Johnny loves it. Bluetooth licensed medical providers work with you to figure out the right ingredients and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problem. Okay? Bluetooth's got Bluetooth tablets are chewable. Okay, Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA. US boners. US boners. US boners. Every time I take a Bluetooth, I feel like American and I'm running to the Royal Rumble and I'm about to drop a hammer, a man's man action right on my lady, okay? Bluetooth. Buchu is American-made, made in the USA, and they prepare and ship it in a discreet fucking package, and it's cheaper than the pharmacy, okay? So it's real simple here, everybody, okay? We got a special deal for you, all right, for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use the promo code TINFOIL at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code TINFOIL to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this show, for making more Americans possible. Okay? We love you, Blue Chew. The history of drugs is very interesting because there is a time where the drug was legal and then suddenly it is not illegal. Uh, what, what, are, what do you think are the forces behind making that happen? And why are drugs illegal? Yeah, there, there isn't a single answer to that question because it's many forces and there are many reasons and it also depends on the drug. But you can make a valid argument that there are racial, historical racial reasons for it, and that is true. Um, you can make a valid argument that nefarious political manipulations were the reason. That's also true. And you can also make an argument that it was well-intentioned people who saw that there was what they perceived as a problem that they didn't fully understand. And they thought, okay, oh, no, 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 this is terrible. There's people that are dying. There are people that have problems. Maybe even crimes are being committed as a result of people using these things. Well, clearly they're bad, so let's get rid of them, and then we'll solve the, all the badness associated with it, which yeah. is a... You know, that's basically how we approach crime or we approach many social problems. We think, OK, uh, it's it's bad when people steal things we will make theft illegal and then that will solve the problem. Of course, uh, this is a different type of problem. It's one that can't be uh, solved with with uh, imprisonment or any kind of typical legal intervention because it's, it's a victimless crime. There is no victim involved in the consumption of a psychoactive drug. So yes. it doesn't quite fall into the same categories and, and you have to actually infringe on people's liberty in order to enforce these laws. So it, I understand why it happened. It just generally speaking, um, you know, but like I could, you know, go on and on about this and, you know, Nixon was aware I love that it. it would like allow selective prosecution of politically, uh, unfavorable 
adversaries, that they were connected to the counterculture. They were connected to the anti-war movement. Um, they were in the 1960s. Psychedelics specifically were thought to pose a threat to the you know traditional American way of life. So that's part of it. But the other part is that when you make something illegal, you gain tremendous power to selectively prosecute, imprison, uh, surveil, interfere with people that you want to. Right. So that's the wonderful thing about drugs being illegal is almost everyone is a criminal almost. And, uh, and so you now have the ability to interfere with almost anyone you want. I mean, think about, think about how easy it is in somewhere like New York city to search someone because you can claim to smell cannabis. Well, most parks in New York city smell like cannabis. Most apartment buildings smell like cannabis because somewhere someone is using cannabis. So a police officer can say that they smell cannabis and then legally have probable cause to search you. So that's, you know, it's, it's tremendously powerful in terms of giving law enforcement the ability to search whoever they want. And, and if that's what you want, if you want to have the freedom to search people, it's tremendously advantageous. I'm curious. Uh, Hey, Hey Hamilton, Johnny here Uh, at the, federal level what do you think the best approach is is it decriminalization is it total total uh recreational uh just you know unleash the kraken and make everything recreational and legal what do, what do you think is the best approach there yeah i mean i do think decriminalization is totally necessary i think that there should probably be a combination of different things where there should be Uh, because traditionally all these different modes have been considered in opposition to one another. So like in the nineties, especially there was this idea that Marinol, are you all familiar with Marinol? Yes. I I believe my grandfather had to take it when he was uh, undergoing cancer treatment. So, uh, so Marinol is an FDA approved THC solution that is, Prescribed, And it, typically in the past, when you'd asked a, con, a conservative politician like Mitt Romney, like, why can't we have legal cannabis? He'd say, well, we have Marinol. Marinol is THC. It's pharmaceutical THC. So if you need, if you want to use it therapeutically, you can already have it. You don't need cannabis. You have Marinol. So Marinol was considered politically a, basically a dangerous a threat to the any kind of liberalization of cannabis law. So what happened was that many people in the cannabis community started to treat Marinol as if it was a bad thing, right? Mm. But it wasn't. It was THC. It's not a bad thing at all. But they'd say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it doesn't have the therapeutic properties of cannabis because of the terpenes, because of the other cannabinoids, because of the entourage effect, because of this, because of that. What they really were they, I, I, I imagine many people genuinely believe that, but the real issue wasn't that Marinol wasn't good. It was that it was a threat to the legalization of cannabis. And in an ideal world, you don't have that adversarial relationship. You have everything. 
you have pharmaceutical products for people that want pharmaceutical products and you have cannabis for people that want cannabis and you don't have any of this complicated medical pretense of I'm getting my cannabis for a headache disorder because it's not legal for adult recreational use. I mean, this is just, it's silly. It's stupid. This is stupid stuff for our society to do. I mean, like it's, it's, and it's also a waste of medical doctor's time. Like, can you imagine going to medical school just to become a fraudulent prescriber of cannabis because the only (laughs) framework for the distribution of it happens to be via a medical doctor. I mean, it's so stupid. It's such a waste. I couldn't agree more. Uh, And they also, hold on one second. They also, by making something black market, you raise the price of it Mm. extremely high. Something that's very common, you put it on a black market, suddenly you yeah. got to pay way more. Well, and you also put money in the wallets of people who operate right. outside the system, I mean, you know, with guns and... Right, you know, right, uh, right, right. Which is, which is, I think, and that's another thing that people get confused by. Like, sometimes people will say, oh, it's so unethical to use cocaine. How could you possibly use cocaine? It, what about the cartels? What about all the bloodshed? What about the deaths? How could you sleep at night and use cocaine and they're confused they seem to actually think that the cocaine is the bad thing yeah the bad thing isn't the cocaine the bad thing is a black market where the distribution has to be routed through cartels and because of the illegality all of this violence is necessary but that's not a product of the alkaloid cocaine that's a product of prohibition in the black market could not agree more. And it, and but then you get into things like, OK, if you could sit there and go, I am you could ruin your life doing cocaine. You know, I go to recovery stuff for cocaine, for uh, amphetamines and alcohol. You know, I had trouble with it. So I clean myself up, you know. But what is the reason to outlaw mushrooms? What what could that be? Nobody's selling their body to get mushrooms. Nobody's robbing people for mushroom money. No, you know, like what is what is the purpose of that? Uh, well, well, when you say that, what do you think about terms about hard drugs or soft drugs? Because they would consider shrooms to be soft drugs, and the other ones hard drugs. Isn't it just because it's availability in a way? I, I that's my question. Why yeah. is mushrooms? I know Oregon's moving towards that. Maps is moving. Well, towards and this, and, but and and there's no logic to the scheduling of drugs, especially yeah. at the federal level. I mean, well, it's just- there's logic when you when you start thinking, okay, there's this group of people who want to control yeah, suppose, what yeah. we consume and control the money. That is the real reason. But I wanted to know, you know, if Hamilton has anything he thinks might be different. Uh, Yeah, well, I I agree with that. There is a logic to it. And yes, the logic is a purely monetary logic. There is a capitalist pharmaceutical system and schedule one drugs are by definition drugs that have no medical value, drugs that cannot be sold by pharmaceutical companies. Now, Already, that's a stupid idea because <laughs> right, right. like just just right off the bat, that's a stupid idea because who's to say what does or does not have medical value? That's something that we may we may find out that um, psilocybin is really treatment, uh, really valuable topically for treatment of psoriasis or something. Who knows? I mean, it's it's really like what is or is not medical is a product of our culture and the current state of scientific research and what we're prescribing for various things. It could be anything depending on what people decide is effective, but more importantly, um, so schedule one, like I said, it means no medical value. That's one of the definitions. 
yet you have cannabis in schedule one, which is recognized in many states to have medical value. And you have THC, which is the most important cannabinoid in cannabis, which is recognized to have medical value. So how is it possible that THC can be in two legal schedules simultaneously, one for its medical use and one that explicitly says that it does not have medical use? And the same is true of GHB. So GHB is simultaneously occupying two legal schedules, one that says schedule one, it has no medical use, and then another that says it's a treatment for narcolepsy. It's just completely hypocritical and contradictory. It makes no sense. And the hard drug, soft drug dichotomy is not a pharmacologically, toxicologically meaningful one. It's meaningless. We just are deciding that cocaine is a hard drug and cannabis isn't a hard drug. But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you go to South America, it's common for people to drink cocaine tea. That's tea made with coca leaves that contain cocaine. People do it all the time. Is that a hard drug? It's cocaine, but it's not a hard drug anymore because it's being consumed orally instead of being snorted. So then, then is that a, a product of the molecule or the root of administration or the cultural associations? I mean, clearly this hard drug, soft drug dichotomy is not a product of the molecule itself. So it's a cultural construct that we've created to represent what types of use we consider threatening in our specific culture at this specific time. But, um, and, and what you said about, you know, the problems that are associated with cocaine or with opioids or with amphetamine, but, and, and how you feel that mushrooms are less of a problem. Well, you know, then someone will decide that mushrooms are a problem. Mushrooms were legal in the Netherlands. And then a tourist, a French tourist named Gael Karoff supposedly ate some mushrooms and jumped off a bridge. It's not even clear that that truly happened, but that was the story that was reported in the media. And they say, Oh no, a tourist jumped off a bridge so these things are bad after all. So they should just be illegal. That's the way it works. Typically is something bad happens and journalists uncritically report on it with no understanding of the potential legal, political, scientific implications of what they're doing. There's a public outcry. Politicians who don't really care one way or the other decide to do what they think will make them look strong and responsive in the eyes of the public and they make it illegal. I completely agree. A great example of this is in Nevada. There are actually people doing, I believe, life for marijuana, for the amount of marijuana they were caught with. But if you got busted, you, for the longest time in Nevada, if you actually got busted with, let's say, uh, cocaine, that was less harsh in Nevada than weed because they had discovered that people like to gamble on cocaine. They'll do a rail and then they'll just play blackjack or pie gow for two days straight, you know? So they, so if you got busted with a plant, I mean, they're both plants, but like one has definitely a, a, a crazier vibe than the other. Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about our friends at BMGElite.com. Okay, now, if you're going to be in Northern California and you're looking to get some weed, this is the best company to do it, okay? it's If you're looking for great weed and hate driving to dispensaries and stand in line, go to BMGElite.com to buy the best from Grand Flora Cannabis. Buy, buy the ounce, and we have it delivered straight from the farm to your front door, okay? 
I mean, no more going and hanging out in these in these freaking dispensaries in line waiting with your mask on. Uh-uh. No, no. more. Northern Cal. You go to bmgelite.com, use the promo code TINFOIL, and you'll get $50 off your purchase, okay? Bam! All right? Statewide delivery coming soon, man. But if you're in NorCal, okay? You're in NorCal. You're looking for some weed. You're on a business meeting, right? You're going to Apple to talk to them about this new <laughs> AI you got, okay? Boom. You call them BMG Elite, bam, they'll send weed right to your house, right to your, right to your uh, hotel, right to your, uh, you know, you're staying in a hostel, right? And you're pretty <laughs> sure it's haunted, but you want to get high. Boom. BMG Elite.com. Top shelf weed right from the farm. That's how we do it at BMG Elite. So if you're in NorCal, anywhere in NorCal, hit these guys up. They will get the weed right to you. That's BMGElite.com at promo code TINFOIL and save 50% off your purchase. BMGElite.com. And, you know, there will be people that will, will, like, when we look at generations in the future and we go, people did life for marijuana, they will go, are you nuts? And that's exactly what's going on, man. We, we allow people of an older generation to determine what people want to do, how, how, what they're, what they are or are not allowed to do. I mean, how long have people been pro marijuana? Right. I mean, yeah. forever. And it's now slowly going. But I bet you if you went to like the elderly going, are you pro or anti marijuana? They're like reefer madness, reefer yeah, madness. Yeah, totally. And that generation that tends to do all the voting will vote it down. Hamilton, I, I assume you've studied this uh, relative to past generations. Are we uh, legally speaking, our relationship to psychedelics? Are we among the more restricted uh, people uh, you know, throughout history? Great question. Would you say, I'm, you know, or it, it depends relative to to when? Well, um, I, I mean, just I, so we're not the most, you would say. I mean, relative to, to the there, entire there history of man. There are more psychedelics that are illegal than ever before in history. The list of controlled substances contains, I don't know, uh, I would say at least 50 psychedelics at the moment, maybe more. And. And so, yeah, we just keep scheduling psychedelics and cannabinoids and opioids indiscriminately. It's happening all the time. So while there's this emphasis on the therapeutic properties of a small number of psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, and then if you want to include dissociatives and cannabinoids like, you know, THC and ketamine, um, at the same time, the psychedelics that are considered unfavorable or bad by many people like two, five I and B O M E are being placed in schedule one. So it's uh, there is progress, but at the same time we are still making the same mistakes that we did in the past because it requires, it, it basically requires abandoning all of these, good, bad, soft, hard, legal, illegal, pharmaceutical, recreational dichotomies. And you have to recognize that this entire framework is flawed and that no drug should be illegal. It's just not, regardless of whether you like it or not, this is not something that I'm saying from the perspective of, you know, if you like drugs, they should be, even if you did 
drugs. If you hate drugs, you should want them to be legal because it will allow for them to be regulated more effectively. It will allow for them to be researched more effectively. It will allow for a market that has all sorts of advantages that will reduce some of the harms associated with use, whether it's uh, testing to make sure that the drugs are what the user actually thinks they are, or whether it's, you know, supervised injection centers or government uh, injection centers where people are provided with opioids. And some people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. How could you possibly do that? Well, we do that with methadone already. So we're, we're doing it now. This would just be a modified version of that. And it's clear that that actually reduces some of the problems. Like if, if, if people are afraid of, you know, people who are dependent on opioids robbing them or something like that so they have money for opioids, then just give them opioids. They cost almost nothing to produce. Let the people have whatever, you know, let them have them. It's not a it, – it's like I, relative to some of the other things that taxpayers are funding, I think that's a pretty small burden on the taxpayer. I mean, I, I imagine – the, the raw material cost for a year of opioids would be like, you know, if you were doing it right, it might be less than $50 a person. Wow. Wow. Now, have you done any research, Hamilton, into what happens when drugs do get legalized in a certain area? Does, does uh, consuming go up or does it go down? I feel that there's a little, when something's a little outlaw, people want to be like, ooh, this is dangerous. I'm doing something Yeah, dangerous. I'm trying to think where they, I mean, Portugal is an example, right? I think. And I, I, from well, what I've been told, it goes down. Yeah, the weed, the kids, we don't want to smoke weed right now. They don't think it's at school because everyone smokes weed. It's right down the street. Huh. But I could be wrong, though. I mean. I mean, sex, I've heard that with sex. Now that sex is much more liberal now. That kids aren't like trying to be as crazy as it, as they used to be because it's not the issue that it used to be. Right, and and patterns may shift as well. So, if you know, for example, hypothetically, if cannabis consumption were to increase in a state where it is legal, there might be some compensatory decrease in alcohol consumption or something like that, or maybe a, a decrease in some other. You know, I think that the most enlightened attitude toward drugs is to realize that everyone is pursuing some drug like experience, whether they're using actual, you know, chemical drugs or not. Maybe it's compulsive exercise. Maybe it's having sex with lots of people. Maybe it's playing video games all day. Maybe it's watching streaming entertainment. Maybe it's listening to podcasts. Maybe Religion. it's you know, looking at your phone all day. There's all sorts of things that people do compulsively that have a drug-like effect, yes. which is basically to lessen suffering and cause euphoria of one kind or another, or at the very least reduce suffering. So, um, so yeah, I think that people will shift in various directions toward one type of uh, suffering reduction strategy or another. And uh, drugs are just one of them. They're just one of them. And they're, you know, arguably, I don't, I don't think they're all that much worse than, you know, spending all of your time on Instagram or whatever is your, or Twitter, you know, I like there's, there's a lot of great minds that have been destroyed during the Trump administration by spending all of their time complaining about Trump. Like some of the smartest yes, people I know. Dude. Yes, yes, That's yes. such a good point. Yes. Truly, some of the smartest people okay. I have ever known lost themselves to Twitter during the Trump administration. They, they could have been 
creating great works of art. And instead, they're just nonstop tweeting about whatever the dumb thing Trump did that day. You know, is that better or worse than being addicted to morphine? I don't know. But it's it's certainly losing yourself in something else that is having a drug-like effect on you that's not constructive. So, or is, I like, I think minimally constructive. There certainly were enough people out there doing that all the time that, you know, you didn't need to be the, like, and I, yeah, anyway, so <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to even say, you know, when you legalize something like patterns will shift. Um, I would have to look at, you know, data from Portugal and say, my impression is that uh, it does not increase use in the way that people think it would, because that's the other thing people say, oh, you can't legalize cocaine because if you legalize cocaine, then everyone would be doing cocaine. Would they? <laughs> no. Nope. You know, is, is that the only thing that's yeah nonstop is that it's illegal and as soon as it's legal you you put down everything in your life to become a cocaine addict or a heroin addict of course not no why would you like there's no reason to you know my whole theory is this it's like you know okay we got this mandate with mass that that's not this conversation but you know what law has been passed that you're like i can't do this now like what we have passed laws to end murder sexual assault kidnapping all this stuff they still happen right i mean and here's my problem with drugs laws is as a recovering drug addict okay and that's why i made the joke earlier sorry about that hamilton it was a joke my no it's, uh, it's all right okay i felt <laughs> bad I'm like, oh man this open bad save it triple a <laughs> um, um, um you know, as a recovering drug addict, I, I, if I would have been, I have been, I did get busted, uh, buying drugs at one point. The blessings was that through legal, I, I had the, the, uh, charges dropped. But let's say I, I, it didn't go that way and I got nailed and I got thrown in jail. Well, I, I am a felon for a very long time. Oh, forever. For if not forever, I have heard people get stuff dropped, but it is so incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. I can stop doing drugs, and I can stop doing drugs for ten years. Yeah, but I am always a felon. Yeah, there's a whole class. It's a class system in America. There's a class of people. They're called felons, and they have fewer rights than the rest of us. Yeah, and it's just like, and it could even be just one moment I make a mistake. Now. Alcohol is legal everywhere. I mean, that is almost the greatest uh, uh, counter. Hold on, a greatest counter to drugs being illegal. We have alcohol. People drive drunk. People die. People. Uh, That's a DUI. Driving drunk is a DUI, though. Yeah. Yeah. Which is it's a whole different thing than just doing drugs, though. No, but my yeah. point is, it's like like people. There are consequences to alcohol consumption. Mm. Yeah, it is legal. Any argument you have against drugs is probably could be the same thing as you could use against alcohol consumption. And we tried to make it illegal. And it just went chaotic. Yeah. And the government did crazy stuff uh, to keep it illegal. I mean, there's actually stories of them poisoning alcohol so people died to oh, keep yeah. it well, illegal. I mean, that, yeah, that's what denatured alcohol is, right? It's just meant. I mean, they destroy it so you can't consume it. They were doing that. I heard those same stories. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like, I yeah. I remember when I was young and I heard them trying to make it so crack was the same uh, punishment as cocaine. And when I was so young, I was like, that's the dumbest movement I've ever heard. And then I realized why they were doing that, because crack was consumed by a certain demographic yeah. and like a nugget of crack 
will get you the same like same punishment as like a helicopter full of cocaine. And you're like, how is that possible? And you realize these drug laws are can be very specific to very certain demographics. It's politics, man. It's all politics. Right. And that is that is the danger of all this stuff. But again, when you go back to you know, we you go back to weed, mushrooms, you know, I don't I don't think there's an argument on why they should be illegal. Now, acid, LSD, I mean, a lot of people think it's the same thing, and they are totally different drugs. Would you, uh, Hamilton, your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think they are. That Why do you think they're different drugs? I mean, I think acid is like a street name for LSD. Well, no, he's talking about no, I mean, mushrooms, a, a mushrooms and, LSD. and LSD. Sorry about oh, that. Mushrooms, mushrooms and, and LSD. LSD. Uh, well, they're certainly different drugs chemically. And they have different durations. Um, I don't think they're they're both psychedelics. What, what is your impression of the difference between them? Well, I mean, I feel like when you're on mushrooms, you kind of get this moment where uh, you step out of the time continuum and, and you just have this moment where it's just it seems a little more spiritual. And I'd love to get into spirituality with you on that. Uh, LSD just seems like you just poured into galactic lava on your skull and you're just, uh, you're just sonic uh, <laughs> and you're in the middle of a pinball game and you're just like, bing, bing, bing all over the place. But is, your, is your impression, you think that because it's synthetic possibly, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Okay. And, and then the history of LSD with the CIA and, and you know, and, and that whole story, the hippie culture, uh, any thoughts on that Hamilton? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that people have a tendency to talk about drugs as if they are a certain way, like mushrooms are like this, mm -hmm. LSD is like this, but a lot of when, or, or for example, DMT is really like, if you say DMT is really, really intense, everyone will agree with that. That's the impression that people have. DMT is intense, but this is all dose dependent. I mean, there's, there's a dose of DMT that isn't intense. There is a mild dose of DMT. DMT is actually, you know, about half the potency of psilocin and mushrooms. It's quite a bit less potent, yet people have this idea of DMT being very strong, but that's a product of the way that it's used and the way that we talk about it. It's not, it's, it is objectively speaking, quite a bit less potent than psilocin. Um, so an LSD, again, it's, you know, LSD is just dose dependent. There's a low dose of LSD that does not produce dramatic effects. And then there's a high dose. And, and so it really just depends on what dose you're talking about. The, the major differences I see between uh, LSD and, and psilocybin containing mushrooms is duration. LSD lasts quite a bit longer, sure. but, um, but in terms of what the, uh, the government use of, or where it came from. That's kind of like the history, I believe, maybe I'm wrong, of LSD. Yeah, I mean, there was there was MK Ultra interest in, in psilocybin-containing mushrooms as well. But yeah, I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine, like, like whether you like LSD or not, whether you think that it's spiritual or not, or whether you had a life-changing experience or a terrifying experience, you have to appreciate that it's capable of doing something incredible, something that is... Uh, very important and powerful. And so you can imagine what the CIA would have thought about that. I mean, especially before, without, without all this hindsight that we have now, um, and especially at that time, uh, parapsychology was considered more valid than it is now. So people 
now if you ask a serious scientist, um, you know, is remote viewing possible? They will say, no, there's no evidence that that has ever been done. Is our, our, our psychic phenomena real? A serious mm-hmm. scientist would say, no, there's no evidence for any kind of psychic phenomena. But in the 1950s, people were less certain about that. There, were, there was more ambiguity. E- even the, the concept of a truth serum was something that people believed in then in a way that they no longer do. So this potential, maybe this stuff is a truth serum. Maybe this stuff does allow people to communicate psychically or to uh, teleport themselves to distant locations to spy, or maybe it can be used to reprogram someone's personality. I mean, those things sound a little unusual by today's circumstances, but you can imagine how in the 1950s that could have been not only a valid subject of inquiry, but a very promising military application for these substances. Um, hold on. You mentioned, uh, and I'll get to you right there. Uh, you mentioned re- remote viewing. Are you into remote viewing, Hamilton? Or is that something you're, you, th- you believe in? Because I'm all about that, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I am not... I'm not a believer in remote viewing. I have never remote viewed. I do not know anyone who is remote viewed. I've never seen evidence of remote viewing. But um, again, I can understand why people would have wanted remote viewing to exist because that would be a really fantastic way to spy on people if you could just sit in an armchair and teleport yourself to a distant location and <laughs> secretly observe what's happening. Well, wait, I, sorry, real quick. Uh, actually, the night is young. When you, Hamilton, I believe the, f- the finale of the season of your show, uh, you you did speak to, uh, I, can't, I don't call her name, but the woman who was uh, involved in self-trepanation. Oh, yeah. uh, um, she... Uh, she said that she had uh, telekinetic ex- experiences. Uh, you know, she performed telekinesis with a with a bird. With a bird, yep. Uh, I'm I'm curious. What do you lend any any credence whatsoever to those uh, reports from her? Um, you know, I interview a lot of people who have beliefs that I find really interesting. So I think that Amanda Fielding is brilliant and extremely interesting, and she believes that she had a psychic connection with a pigeon that she was in love with, and. Uh, And it's not really important to me whether or not that is real so much as she thought it was real and it was real Mm. to her. So that's, that's the reason that I included that in the story. It's not, uh, but do I think that Amanda Fielding, um, was able to psychically communicate with her, her pigeon? I haven't seen any evidence of it and it would, you'd have to experimentally test that, you know, you'd have to devise an experiment and, uh, and there's a lot of things that seem real until they are experimentally evaluated. But you do so, think that's worthwhile. Know, that's a worthwhile study, possibly, uh, investigating. Uh, it's, a, it's not a study that I would want to allocate a lot of money and time to performing. But for some people, yeah, sure. I mean, it really depends on what you're interested in and what you think is possible. Um, and and it's it's better to study things than to not study them because if you don't course, study them yeah. at all, then they can just persist forever. Like, do any of you know about uh, facilitated communication? Are you familiar with this? No, no. what is that? This was a, a fad in the 1980s um, where there were some psychologists who were working with people who had various uh, developmental disabilities. Uh, who or had some kind of almost like locked in syndrome and they had this idea, well, what if this person seems mentally retarded in one way or another, but they're not, they just can't communicate. And if they, um, 
if they could just have some kind of facilitated communication, then maybe they're just like everybody else. They just can't communicate it. So they started using human beings like the, uh, what is the word called? Uh, like a plan chat or something on a, on a Ouija board. Do you know? I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they started using human beings like that, using their hands, like uh, on a, basically on a Ouija board type apparatus, like a keyboard. And they found that all these people who they had previously thought were mentally retarded were actually fully capable of communication. And this was tremendously exciting. You can imagine if you were a parent and you had a child who had never spoken before and suddenly the sympathetic therapist comes along and says, your son is actually capable of communication and they have a lot to say. They love you. They thank you for your trust in them throughout all these years. And they're excited to go to school now. I mean, it would be immensely immensely yeah. uh, gratifying to have that experience. And so a lot of people didn't critically evaluate this facilitated communication process. As it turned out, it wasn't real at all. And as soon as anyone did any kind of experimental testing and the experiment that they did was they would show the person something like a, a key or a feather and without the facilitator in the room, And then they would bring the facilitator back in and they would say, what did I just show you? But if the facilitator wasn't there, then they weren't able to report whatever it was that they'd seen. So it took a very simple experiment to demonstrate that this this entire process was fraudulent. So there's a lot of things that can persist without any kind. I mean, this is why the scientific method is so beautiful is this is the tool that we have created for evaluating the truth of these claims. And without experimental evidence to prove or disprove something, um, things can persist forever because especially when we want something to be true, we want psychic communication to be true. We want extraterrestrials to be real. We want there to be life after death. We want all kinds of things. We want gorillas. Wanted, we want gorillas to be able to that? talk. I mean, the same thing happened with gorillas, right? Yeah. Where they had all these gorillas that suddenly could communi- communicate through people, you know? And I think most what, of that but, has but, been proven but not to Is be it possible, Hamilton, that there are things that exist outside the laws of physics that exist outside of the scientific method that are on a plane that maybe we don't understand from from information that is thousands of years old whether it's ancient knowledge from what is believed ancient civilizations buddhism when buddhists back in the day were talking about how basically we were living in a simulation simulation uh you know are are there things that we can't measure there are things that we haven't measured, and there are many, many, many things that we don't know. So I want to be very clear about that. Sometimes people get this impression that science has explained everything or that there's no mystery in the world. There is enough mystery to last every scientist internationally for as long as humanity will ever be around. There's no shortage of mysteries. Um, but if you are believing in a materialist scientific framework. That is to say, you believe that we live in a reality that is made of matter, uh, that doesn't include spiritual things that are not um, material in their nature, then it should be testable 
via the scientific method. So that's, that's the basic idea. So I, I think that especially in the realm of psychology, you know, there are all sorts of things that we don't understand that have been very difficult to study that are still fundamentally not understood. But that doesn't mean that they're supernatural to me in the same way that, um, you know, there, there's a, a famous psychiatrist named John Mack. Or is anyone familiar with him? Uh, no. No. He, uh, he was very interesting in that he was an, an expert on alien abduction. And his basic attitude toward alien abduction was it doesn't matter if alien abduction is real or not. What matters is that people think it's real. And if people think it's real, then it's real. And so I have to treat the people who have had these experiences as if it's real yes. because it is real to them. So it doesn't <laughs> matter whether, you know, you could spend your whole life saying, no, you, you weren't abducted. Actually, you weren't abducted. Where's your evidence? Show me the evidence at that point. Then you're, you're foolishly neglecting to address the actual issue, which is that this person thinks they were abducted. So I think that there are all sorts of things that are psychologically real, that are perceptually real, that may not be, materially real but that doesn't mean that they're not important have you had psychedelic experiences that have challenged your uh materialist views have you ever been shaken uh in that way that so many people are no and that, and again this is another thing that's, so when i say that that's not to say that i haven't had utterly extraordinary experiences i've had experiences where my entire concept of time disintegrated where I didn't know who I was, where I thought I was my father or my grandfather, where I was traveling down my genetic lineage back in time, where I didn't know where anything about myself. And these are extraordinary experiences psychologically. I just don't feel the need to explain them supernaturally. Never had a moment, never one moment of weakness though. Like even, uh, you know, what do you mean by weakness? Immediately following. Like maybe he, there is some, I'm using that colloquially, but you know, you know, when that you never been shaken in a moment after, after an experience where you thought maybe you brought something back that you couldn't have known anything like that. Again, you know, I, I've had amazing, amazing experiences that, that were psychologically extraordinary that I can't explain to you pharmacologically. I can't, you know, I can say, Oh, you know, the DMT bound to my five HT two a receptor and it caused (laughs) glutamate release in the prefrontal cortex and it caused (laughs) this, you know, disruption of the default mode network and this or that happened, you know, whatever you can explain these things pharmacologically. It doesn't capture the psychological essence or the experiential essence of what occurred, but I just don't, feel the need to invoke spirits or the astral plane or simply because I don't think they have explanatory value. What is really happening is that I am comfortable saying that I don't know that I I don't know. So So I'm not going to say that it was spiritual because I don't think that has explanatory value. And I'm also not going to say that it was only one thing scientifically, because I don't think that explains it fully either. I'm not saying that it's supernatural. I'm saying that there are some things that we have not adequately described materialistically, and I hope one day to be able to do it, but we just haven't done it yet. Hey, I was wondering, uh, did you get any pushback from Vice for showing uh, how the synthetic toad venom was being kind of produced or made? Did anybody tell you to push back or like in different... Like, you you straight up showed it. Yeah, like but there's also made. crazier ones like the crystal. Well, I know, but I'm wondering if he's ever got like pushed that. back because you don't see this. You see this on YouTube, and you've seen yeah. it like on uh, Get Rich or Die Trying movie. But yeah, not, but this, maybe not yeah, this was like yeah. And I'm you, wondering you, you, had the, you had like he said, drunk drug ink showing yeah. you how to do certain things, but well, drugs ink doesn't show any. No, yeah, no, so that's a good question. 
And, and the answer is yes. There was an enormous amount of pushback. And that's why I kind of, that's why when you first said like, how is it that you did drugs? It's kind of like the question is, uh, sort of weird to me because that truly was never an issue, but showing that synthesis was a huge yeah. issue. I mean, I had to, I had to fight so hard to show that synthesis. I had to pay out of pocket to transport all of the scientific equipment to that lab in Mexico. I had to find a lab mm-hmm. that would allow me to do that, which thankfully there was a chemist in Mexico who was a, a fan of my show who also happened to own a giant lab <laughs> who allowed me to do it there. I had to hire independent legal counsel to assess it. I had to have endless arguments with the legal department who didn't understand the difference between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT and had never taken a chemistry class. And so it's, you know, they kept saying, well, it contains DMT in its name, therefore it is DMT. (laughs) And I would have to say, okay, but I could call it something else. I can call it trimethyl serotonin. I can call it whatever you want to call it. So yeah, that was extremely, extremely difficult. And, uh, and, you know, in retrospect, you know, you do these things and it just, it's on, it happens and people don't make much of it. But at the time that was so hard to do. That was one of the hardest things I've ever uh, done in terms of getting, getting it on television. And, um, and, and that has been the case with most of the chemistry that has been really, really hard because people just don't want that for whatever reason. But I think it's very important to show the chemistry. I think that I think whether you care about chemistry or think it's boring or whatever, I really like chemistry because I think at the end of the day, it is one of the few ways that we can truly know a drug, right? Like pharmacology, as I said, doesn't fully uh, or even come close to capturing the experience of a drug. I think art and literature do a much better job of capturing the experiential essence of a drug experience and pharmacology does. Um, and that's not really what, you know, molecular neuropharmacology is about anyway, or at least it's not even close to there yet. Um, but chemistry is something that we can know. And what's beautiful about chemistry is it's timeless. You know, people first synthesized 5-MeO-DMT in, I think it was probably the 1920s. And, and that synthesis still works today. That chemistry never becomes obsolete in the same way that experience never becomes obsolete. Someone's experience using morphine 200 years ago is just as valid as someone's experience using morphine today. But if you look at the way that people thought these drugs worked or the way that people socially considered them, it changes all the time depending on where you are and what politician is in office. So that's, I think, one reason that I like to emphasize synthesis and chemistry is because it's timeless and because it is a genuine way of understanding these substances, even though some people might consider it boring. Well, I mean, they didn't appreciate the synthetic part. And what's funny is uh, my family's actually from Sonora and I told my dad to watch it. And he was like, yeah, they actually are going after those toads. Like there's people that are looking for those toads when he made it synthetically, which is the same thing, but yeah. they don't want to take it that way because it's not. Well, that, from the that episode moved me, man. That yeah. episode really moved me, man. Uh, it just showed a lot of your heart as well. I mean, I know that it, you know, that comes out in a lot of episodes, but that one really moved me the to make a whole episode basically going, okay, here's where I was wrong is like that. That's, that's a sign of somebody who is, um, 
who is us, who, who to me has integrity and honest dealer. Yeah, we, we can use know, more of him in TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then to like to find that guy, and even in his state where he was, where you know he's oh, in his yeah. assistant living, and to show him the love and respect, and not even stop there, but to make sure he got his royalties his recognition. Yeah, to me is like a high character brother. But and you're concerned for you know you're concerned for the the the, the toads. I mean, like to me, most people don't care when you when you fight for people who can't fight for themselves. That is truly a sign of somebody of high character. So I I very much respect you on that. Uh, was there any episodes uh, that stood out where you were like, "Wow, uh, I learned a lot here"? I'm sure. I mean, every episode we all learn so much. But there, was there one with that, or any a couple of them that really stood out to you? I mean, I learned so much on all of them. Whenever sure. you know, people will say, like, How, what did you study in college? Like, what class did you take to learn this? And, you know, I think they're not recognizing that so much of the process of learning is actually the making of this documentary series. It's tremendously educational. And or people say, how do I you did a drug? How do I get your job? I'm so <laughs> jealous. I'm so I want your job so much of doing a drug. And it's like, are you kidding me? You can do a drug without making a documentary. It's so insanely easy. I, if, if your interest is using a drug, then don't make a documentary about it. It will be a million times cheaper and easier. You won't have to deal with any lawyers. You won't have to deal with any it'll just be like there's no comparison i cannot recommend enough not making a documentary <laughs> if the point is to uh use a drug so but uh yeah it's it's you know that's the real privilege it's not you know every single one of these substances i had used previously privately the point was never to use the drug if i use a drug it was because i wanted to demonstrate something so for example with salvia divinorum Everyone thinks, oh, Salvia, that's the crazy drug, the crazy legal drug that you get at the bong store. And then you smoke it. And my friend had a five minute trip and Miley Cyrus did it. And <laughs> that was wild or whatever. Like, and then to see like, oh, no, but for some people, this is a god. For some people, this is, you know, the most powerful medicine that they have available, that this is sacred, that they have a they are elderly in their entire life. They have cared about this plant and they use it in a different way. And the experience is religious for them, you know? And so the point there is not to consume a drug, but to show what drug consumption can be like in a different cultural context. So that people have a different vision of what the substance is. And, and that's, yeah, I mean, that is, is I think extremely beneficial. You know, I, I, in the new season of my show, I did a, a piece that's partially about Iboga. Um, and it, for anyone that doesn't know, Iboga is a central West African shrub that is powerfully psychedelic. And there is a religion, a syncretic Christian religion, where they believe that the tree of knowledge of good and evil in, from Genesis was an Iboga tree. And that the basis of Christianity is a psychedelic tree so they uh but it's a very beautiful strange religion by our standards um you know religion is so boring for most people that the idea of having a genuinely transcendent experience is totally alien you know you think uh you know i'm i was bar mitzvahed um i had to learn hebrew i had to learn a torah portion 
no aspect of that was remotely spiritual for me in any way, not even 1% spiritual. It was just, it was essentially bureaucratic. There was nothing uh, enlightening (laughs) about it. Um, you know, I don't look to my Torah portion as a source of knowledge and think, oh, that, that really was beautiful. That changed me. Whereas this Iboga religion is, you know, it is, I think represents what religious experience could be and should be, which is true transcendence and healing and community and, and art and music. You know, this is something that people not only enjoy they look forward to this is like the greatest thing in their life this is the highlight is getting to be part of this ritual not something that you're doing because your parents are forcing you to do it so um yeah i mean i just even seeing that seeing like wow this is a culture that has figured out religion in a way that we have not at all and uh And, you know, talking to so many different types of people, because there's lots of people who are experts on one part of drugs, but you never get the full picture with one part. You know, you could be the greatest chemist in the world, but you won't understand drugs if you don't also talk to police officers about what they think about drugs or philosophers or politicians or artists. And so I think gaining that holistic understanding has been really crucial. And that's been, you know, the biggest part of this for me is just like talking to as many different types of of people as possible to try to figure out how we got to where we are. You mentioned on your uh, Patreon show that you have spoken to police about uh, drugs and their thoughts. Are you, do you come away with any uh, sort of over, uh, you know, overwhelming perception about what they know. And I mean, are they, are they well-educated on drugs and drug use? Would you say uh, no. generally? No, no, they are not. And that's, and that's, I think one of the, the widest and most damaging misconceptions in the psychedelic community is that, that politicians and law enforcement understand psychedelics and they are intentionally prohibiting them because they recognize that they represent some kind of powerful force that will interfere (laughs) with the status quo. And that is not maybe for a small number of people in the 1960s, maybe they kind of got it. But if you ask the average cop, you know, what is LSD like? They don't know. They have no idea. They don't know how it's different from heroin. They just know it's illegal, that bad guys use it, that it destroys people. Some people go insane. It's damaging, whatever. They only they have this very negative, very reductionist, confused idea of the subject. And the reason that they are able to do this psychologically is because they think it's bad. You know, you, you couldn't lock people in cages for a living all day, every day and sleep at night if you genuinely thought it was good yeah. or you genuinely thought that these things weren't damaging, I mean, you we, have to convince yourself that it's bad. And so, and so why is that an important why, thing to recognize? Why do I even bother saying that? Because it means it can change. If police officers genuinely understood psychedelics or drugs and they were doing this maliciously and they understood why, like, like we would have no hope. That would be a, a far more depressing scenario because they would understand their potential and they would be acting in a calculated manner to prevent people from, you know, having these enlightening experiences. That's not the case at all. They just don't get it. They don't understand drugs. So they are just, you know, they're just doing what they think is right. Most of these people are just doing what they think they're supposed to be doing and they don't fully get it. They're not evil. They're just very confused. And, and 
they're corrupted by it because police officers benefit from a basic moral dichotomy of good guys and bad guys, right? You don't want to think about the world in terms of its full complexity because that would interfere with your ability to enforce the laws, right? You don't want to think, oh, maybe that guy stole something because he never had a chance in life. Maybe maybe he never had a father that cared about him. Maybe his mother was addicted to drugs. Maybe he like had a you know, father to child that he can't support and he's like just totally fucked up in every dimension of his existence and stealing is the only hope that he has right now. That's not beneficial. That doesn't help you throw that guy in a cage. Right. 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 So, you, so you have to instead think that's a bad guy. That's a bad man. That's a bad guy. So I'm putting the bad guy in a cage to get the bad guy off the street. You have to think that way. Otherwise you couldn't do that job. Yeah. But I think that there's something deeply corrupting for law enforcement about drug prohibition because they are enforcing a law that hurts people. Like you could be a, a police officer and solve violent crimes and genuinely be helping people. I mean, even like in New York city, if you get robbed, there's no, there's no resources available for that because they don't have time. Like if your apartment is robbed, they're not going to fingerprint your apartment and find the person that robbed you. They, they would just say, sorry, you know, that's that we'll, we'll write up a report moving on. But Part of that has to do with all of the resources that are wasted on these fake crimes. Like there would be, I, I think that it would improve citizen police relationships so much because not only they would be genuinely helping people, they'd be able to spend their time working on crimes that we all agree are bad for communities as opposed to like victimless non-crimes like possessing a plant or whatever or growing a plant or selling a plant or selling a chemical or doing chemistry or whatever. So um, I think that it's, yeah, it's deeply, deeply corrupting and corrosive psychologically to law enforcement to have to enforce these laws that they either, if they get it, and I know, I do know some cops that get it. And if they get it, it's immensely disturbing to them to the point that they will want to leave their job. And if they don't get it, then they're living in a fantasy in order to live with themselves for doing yeah. something bad. Yeah. So it's not good either way. But not only are they doing that to the police department, but also kids with the D.A.R.E. program. We were on the D.A.R.E. program. They tell them all drugs are bad. Yeah, Alcohol, everything's bad. Drugs, drugs, drugs are bad. I mean, we live with it till you get internet, till you get a phone. You got to hook yeah. them early, dude. And all of their funding, like that's a major problem I have with the police union. You know, it's like, you know, are there bad cops? Of course there's bad cops. There's bad everything. There's bad pizza delivery guys. I mean, like everything's there's bad of. I mean, it, you don't corrupt a whole group, man. Okay. But, you know, in California, you know, one of the most powerful unions is the prison correctional officers union. And they don't want to see their funding going down because if you start releasing uh, drug addicts, that's a lot of empty, empty, empty rooms uh, in their in their prison hotels. That's a lot of labor that no one's going to do. Yeah, and that's a lot of That was a big problem with Camille Harris. She didn't want to release people because she said it would hurt the uh, labor. Um, so uh, that's my biggest problem with law enforcement. It's like I understand that because, you know, you ask my mom. She's a wonderful person. She'll be like, drugs are bad. I'm like, my mom's not a bad person. She doesn't mean ill. She Even that word, though, drugs, is just, just yeah, almost it's like meaningless bells and whistles. word now at this point. But when you, when you refuse to allow progressive laws that, that the people want, which is the decriminalization, that's when I start having problems 
with uh, with a lot of stuff. Now, um, you've done DMT. Have you done DMT? I have done DMT. Yes. What do you? What did the metal elf say to you? Were they cool uh-huh. seeing you? Did they like you? Was <laughs> it welcoming? I'm sorry to report I've had no elf experiences. I mean, maybe, uh, yeah, no, no elves. Um, again, very, very visually interesting phenomena, uh, but no elves for whatever, hey, whatever hey, reason. Hey, They're Ham- there. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> hey, hey, Hamilton, uh, as it's, it, your, your show is kind of an auteur project, I would say. I mean, you're, you're at the center of it and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you direct and, and write mm-hmm. uh, most of the episodes. Is that right? Is that it is okay? Yeah. Um, yes, all of them. Yeah. How how as you've evolved and your views have evolved, how how has the show changed over over the now what decade plus that you've been doing it? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I never studied journalism. I never studied film production. So one thing that's changed is I learned to do it. You know, mm-hmm. like I didn't know how to do these things when I started out, and I, I don't look at the stuff especially the old, like I haven't looked at the things that I made in my early twenties since I made them. I can imagine I would consider them cringeworthy if I were to watch them now. <laughs> yeah, that could uh, be but, uh, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I'd like them, I, but I certainly don't want to watch them. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do that now, maybe one day. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and I became increasingly aware of the way people respond to things. That's the other, you know, you make something for the first time, you don't know anything about the way people respond. So for, you know, little things like I, you know, I I was prescribed Ritalin at the time. And I remember I would, you know, I was honest about using Ritalin, which I didn't think was a big deal. Lots of people use Ritalin or Adderall. Uh, I didn't think it would be like amazing to people to acknowledge that I had consumed some small therapeutic quantity of a drug, but it was a big, people be like, Oh my God, he's going to die. He's a drug addict. It's insane. <laughs> it's like, okay. I mean, uh, I don't know where you're from, but uh, in most cities, there's a lot more than that happening among almost every young person. So if that's a huge deal to you, then I don't know. I guess it was, I guess the moral of the story is it was a huge deal to people in a way that I didn't expect uh, so much so that people like are still talking about it today or it's like, you're, you're still talking about the time I took Ritalin once when I was 21, who cares? Um, <laughs> but, but I, and, and that's a weird lesson. You know, if you're not doing things for public consumption, you just don't know how people are going to respond to things. You're making jokes with your friends that you think are funny with you and your friends. And then you <laughs> present it to a large number of people and you realize, wow, that joke is a joke that no one else gets at all. Like, I experienced that at the beginning joke. of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is that? I experienced that at the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would, it, it's funny you say that because I was one of the things I was going to say it seems you've become more aware of how the show might affect you know even policy uh you know and how people perceive these drugs it feels like or you know these substances i should say uh because it, it seems like initially it was more of a it was more about your experience is that is that safe to say uh than it is now i mean now it seems like it's more of a study yeah. on subject is that right yeah yeah i think well yeah certainly the the early ones had more of an experiential emphasis, but it was also at that time, um, you know, like one of the things that I think made vice prominent early on was 
travel reporting of yes. one kind or another. Yes. So they, they, everything was very low budget, but there was a lot of appreciation for the interest of going somewhere unusual and yeah. speaking with local people um, in a way that's actually not all that common. I'm kind of amazed by how little travel there is in most things that I see. Um, you know, even I remember trying like in 2018, I decided I wasn't going to make my show anymore. And, uh, and I was sort of pitching various projects to Netflix and, you know, maybe they were just saying this because they weren't interested, but they were, they would say things like, Oh no, that's in Africa. No, 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 we can't. No, we're like algorithmically speaking, we're not doing Africa. Oh, what? They don't got wow. the money. Wow. That's so interesting. Wow. The By the way, please, please tell Vice stop to stop burying the show. I mean, your show's literally the last show in the list for some reason. It's impossible to find it. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, the, yeah. It's a, it's a mess. And 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 when people like, but the other thing, of course, is I could complain about Vice all day. It's not you know whatever. It's not interesting i don't think but at the end of the day it's just a distribution company they don't make anything so when people say like why did like vice is this way vice is that way vice isn't anything vice is a logo and uh and so you know that the people that are making things are tired of it and very few of them are still there anymore they've lost virtually every single person it happens to be the case that my show was Controvert. Like I said at the beginning, that it's very easy to make things about drugs. Yeah, it's easy to make things about drugs. Like Netflix has lots of drug-related things, uh, but for whatever reason, the kind of stuff that I do has been hard. I will acknowledge that, and uh, and I have not had a lot of success. I, there, maybe maybe it's because I get off a little bit on doing things that I know are edgy or I know are pushing towing the line a little bit, but that's, I, I feel like that's part of what one should do artistically is, is try to figure out what the line is and get as close to it as you possibly can to exercise your own freedom because you can synthesize a psychoactive drug in a country where it's legal. So why not show that you can do that? Why live in fear of how it might be bad? Why not try to do it? And so that, but most people would prefer not to do that. If you could just, you know, do something a little safer. Why not do that? So I, I have had difficulty and, you know, as much as I could complain about vice, the bottom line is they did give me money to make this weird thing. And, uh, (laughs) and it was, uh, it was, you know, it was good while it lasted. I'm, I'm done with it, but it was, it was a, I don't think I could have made it elsewhere. You know, I, I worked for national geographic on a number of projects and it was far, 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 far worse there. No comparison. I mean, they really interfered. Sorry, so are, are you? So this is, the, is this is the last season? Then? Yeah, any more? No, I don't think there's going to. I mean, I'll, I'll do things in the future. Of you know, I have, like I said, I have a podcast. I'll continue writing. I'll probably make something again if someone gives me money to do it. But I'm, I'm just going to do my plan at the moment is just to do full time chemistry from for the uh, foreseeable future because there's now a lot of resources available to do scientific research that weren't available in the past because of the pharmaceutical interest in psychedelics that is now widespread. I mean, there's publicly traded psychedelic pharmaceutical companies right now on the stock market. Yep. 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 A lot of people thought, now was there anything that got cut that you really wish could have been in? And if later on, will we ever get to see that where it's like, okay, this is the uncut version, you know, vice, 
let me release this. Is there anything where you're like, man, why won't you let me put that in? Like, no. And you're like, okay, fine. But I'm going to hold on to it later. Yeah, I mean, there are things that I like, again, maybe because of this slightly edgy tendency that, that I have where, you know, I – I think animal sacrifice is really interesting. I just <laughs> I did not I, expect that. If you give me a million different categories <laughs> I could have picked up, I would never <laughs> pick animal sacrifice. But okay, listening. So, and and I think unless you are a vegan, which I am not, I don't know if anyone here is. No, nope. but nope. yeah. So unless you are a vegan, I think you have no right to mm-hmm. tell people they can't show animal sacrifice. Like the idea of someone that eats meat saying that religious animal sacrifice is unacceptable. And in many of these instances, they eat the meat after they're done with the sacrifice anyway. They're not wasting it. They're not throwing it in a trash can. So I I think that that is part of these traditions. And it annoys me to no end. And there was one. And I like I love animals. I'm not into hurting animals, but I also am a lover of visually interesting things. And there was one shot of a chicken being decapitated. That was like a million dollar. Like, I I don't think anyone with all of the resources in Hollywood could have captured a chicken sacrifice as cinematically as this was captured. And it had to be cut. That was like, you know, again, it makes me it makes me sound like a twisted. I'm not I don't get off on, <laughs> on cruelty to animals. I really don't. But just in terms of the like visually amazing aspect of this religious chicken sacrifice, it was uh, it was I, I couldn't believe the shot as we were getting it. Um, so that there's that, you know, there's some. um but with the chemistry, I was able to get away with essentially everything that I wanted to do because there was no one that knew what I was doing. That was the other <laughs> wonderful thing about it. That's what's up. <laughs> um, so we wrap it up. Is there any – do you guys are – you guys love the show. Uh, course, you know, yeah. I just got hip to it. I've been watching it. But is there any – episode that stuck out to you guys that you really loved that you had a question about or i got two more questions we wrap it up what do you, johnny or xg anything um you know the only the only other thing i have on my list here is i'm, I'm curious what your uh personally how you felt about the people that assign sort of uh spiritual uh value to naturally occurring 5meo 5meo dmt versus synthetic synthesized uh 5meo sources uh, how 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 did you? Because I mean, you were you found yourself at odds with them at the, at, at the conclusion of that episode this season, and, I, and I'm curious. I I mean, do you do you respect those people and their beliefs? I mean, I, how can? Because I mean, they are an impediment to progress. When you agree, explain uh, what the, what the happened in the episode, Johnny, for those who might not. Well, see it's it. the it's the five meo DMT producing uh, toad, mm-hmm. and these people who they harvest the venom from these toads that has the psychoactive substance. And in doing so, they... They're killing often, it all. Well, they oftentimes harm, harm the toad. And, and it, I mean, you're, it's arguable that you're harming any animal that you have to come into contact with like that uh, in that intimate way where they grab it and, you know, squeeze the, squeeze it, yeah. squeeze the nodules. Um, and there, it's possible to synthesize, though, the same substance and, and chemically identical. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Hamilton. Uh, but yeah. the, the, the people who are you know have have spent you know decades now uh collecting and harvesting this venom they believe that it has some spiritual value actually getting it from a natural source uh sam so i yeah i'm just curious uh, sort of your 
your personally how you how you found that yes yeah and i know i'm gonna sound like a horrible hypocrite right now by i know i just probably i will regret having said what i said about the animal sacrifice because (laughs) this is the sort of thing that uh that the people tend to really get up in arms about um you know the the people that care about that are just militant in a way that i don't that's what i sense but but that is part of a religious ritual and it is in my opinion justified as part of the tradition of that culture the consumption or smoking of 5-meo dmt containing toad venom is new this is something that was discovered by a guy in texas in the 1980s a guy named ken nelson there is no culture that has been doing that for generations it is something that we created american people created we have no reason to unnecessarily hurt animals. It's, there's no real justification. And it's becoming very popular. I mean, you have Mike Tyson talking about it. You have Diplo wearing like a Buffalo various yeah. uh, suit to award ceremonies. You have all these different celebrities that are having life-changing experiences with 5-MeO-DMT, and they're all getting it from this toad. And the toad is endangered so i mean this is like there's a an example that i give in the episode of this thing called the the scrotum frog of lake titicaca this is a a species that does nothing there is no it's like rhinoceros horn there is no medical value whatsoever in this particular frog and yet it is being hunted to extinction just because of basically a trend because people think uh why not put it in this drink called rana imaka um so when you then compare that to a organism that is producing a chemical that somewhat reliably produces a religious experience in users a a life-changing totally amazing experience you can just imagine where this is heading you know, it's not going to be good for that toad. It's going to be bad for it. And so I think that it's extremely important to figure out a way to do it sustainably as soon as possible before it's too late. And these things happen quickly. You know, it could be a couple of years. And then we realize, wow. whoa, we went way overboard with the harvesting of that toad venom. Now they're extinct in the wild. I mean, that kind of thing happens. So that's why I was so, um, you know, and, and, it, and it's not comparable to a chicken sacrifice to be clear this is well there's you know, a this, bazillion chickens yeah yes there are a bazillion we chickens found a way to grow them very yes a lot uh i see your love for chemistry um, i'm wondering do you think the education system makes it not cool because i mean i'm pretty sure you've hooked people onto chemistry while watching this i mean if i was in high school and i saw your documentary i was like dude how do i make this in a couple years because i mean you're surely showing it i'm have you turned anybody on? Do you think the education system tries to show chemistry down? Because, I mean, in high school, it's boring. Like, I mean, maybe I had a bad teacher. Could be that. But do you have a feeling? Because you have a love for it that you're like, this is all I want to do for the rest of the future. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It borders on me thinking that it's a conspiracy. Yeah. That it's so the way how, We're listening. how boring people make it relative to how interesting it is. Yeah. I mean, it's un- and then you compare that to astrophysics, which is, I think, actually quite boring. 
relative to the way that it's portrayed culturally. Like it's amazing to me that we have so little interest in chemistry considering how important it is and so much interest in astrophysics considering how unimportant (laughs) it is to our daily lives. Um, But yeah. So yeah, I think that, you know, the education system has just done a really, really bad job at making chemistry interesting to people. Um, maybe it's because like at, at the time in the 1950s, when there was, you know, chemistry kits were yeah. given to, to children and it wasn't unusual for nerdy children to have a chemistry lab in their home. That was also a time when a lot of the chemistry industry was in the United States. Now the industry is almost entirely in China and maybe people don't even see it as like a useful career to encourage young people to be interested. I don't know why, you know, you could explain it a million different ways. Maybe it has to do with fear of terrorism. Maybe it has to do with the war on drugs. Maybe it has to do with the loss of American industry. There's a, you know, there's a lot of different ways to explain how this happened, but it's really not good because chemistry is the study of matter. Like it's not just, it's not just synthesis. So if you know a little bit about chemistry, you'll know a little bit about everything in the world. So it's, it's like very useful knowledge. Um, And just to get back to that, that question that you asked before that I didn't answer about the difference between the synthetic and the toad. um, You know, I think one thing that a lot of people misunderstood from that episode is they thought I was saying there is no difference. I'm not saying there is no difference. I'm saying that the difference is a psychological difference and we have almost no appreciation for psychology either. We, we tend to immediately go to the spiritual when things can be adequately described psychologically without the need to invoke the supernatural. Set and so, setting, right? I mean, yep. Yeah, so it's, it's like if I say, hey, you know, I've got this venom for you. It came from a sacred toad that was from the uh, a sacred garden that was... Uh, cultivated by a yaki elder and for generations and this toad is an elder toad it's 15 years old and it was underground for nine months the same period of human gestation and you know this is the this is a a religious experience and then you say okay here's five mu dmt it came from a nameless chemist in a nameless laboratory in china you know we have all these negative associations yeah. with China culturally. There's like, like fear of Chinese people is totally normalized in our culture. Like it makes sense that people have different experiences, but that can be explained psychologically. And that's all I'm saying is that yeah. I'm not yeah. saying no one is having a different experience. I'm saying the differences are psychologically mediated, not chemically or pharmacologically mediated. Is that the same thing with uh, crystal structures or polymorph uh, formation on LSD? Where people think it's like uh, Damn, different. She going hard. Yeah, because some people will tell you like, oh, this was crystallized this way. It should hit different. But it's just a crystal a structure. You think it's still like you think it's place and setting? Or yeah, that's person? a great question. That's a great question. And that's another example, I think, of our total lack of appreciation for psychology. And, and this bizarre tendency that we have to use chemi- chemistry is extremely useful as an explanatory science, but that is one place where it is being misused because uh, you're really going to say it was a crystal polymorph. That is the difference when most of these people have no idea what polymorph it is when you could explain it psychologically so much more easily. I mean, if you did a giant controlled study with different LSD polymorphs and, you know, you had a hundred participants trying each polymorph several times and you were able to, you could, you know, there, there conceivably could be a difference, maybe one, uh, 
is dissolves more readily and the faster it dissolves the faster the onset of the experience and therefore the more jarring the psychological transition therefore the more anxiety the person experiences like something like that is conceivable but there's no evidence for it and so it's far more easy to assume that this is just a a psychological effect that the placebo effect also applies to active compounds not just inactive compounds that the expectations that we have are part of the experience that's set in setting all right well what a wonderful episode final question what is after all of this traveling and learning about this who what is your favorite what is your favorite drug can uh, daddy say what his favorite drug oh, is? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it favorite, it, I'm not even trying to be annoying or difficult by, by resisting the question. It, I genuinely, it's like favorite song. Favorite, if you have a lot of experience with something, then you recognize that there are different foods that are appropriate for different occasions, different songs that are appropriate for different occasions. You know, there's a, you might have a favorite sad song. You might have a favorite song to play at a party. You might have different types of songs. So, you know, I don't think that there is a single drug that I would point to. If I, if I had to say one drug, I I think both five MEO DMT and Iboga or Ibogaine have a lot of potential to help people. And I think that an appreciation of them in our culture could they could potentially make the world a better place, which is big. I mean, that's, that's a, that's the goal. So, you know, a drug that can help people who are suffering from substance abuse disorders, that's huge. That's extremely important. So I, I do think that that's something that I hope will be more thoroughly investigated in the coming years because um, we need something like that. Where can people find the, your vice show? I know. Is it only on Vice right now? Is it on like any of these other streaming networks or anything like that? Oh, they don't, you know, I, I get so many messages from people asking me where to watch. It depends on what country you're in. It depends on a million different things. It's on uh, a a cable channel called Vice TV. I don't have a TV. I can't watch it on TV. I don't know how people do. Um, (laughs) I guess if you have certain cable providers you can watch it on cable i would just watch it on amazon that seems to be the easiest if you're in the united states or on itunes people have also been ripping it and putting it on youtube which i'm very happy to see because i just want people to watch it but the only issue is that they keep like cutting parts of it out so for that reason i would say try to find uh like a version that is the full piece what what uh, is that to circumvent the uh copyright uh yeah 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 so that's you know that's the only problem um, in, in Hulu Live, it might be on Hulu at some point. I don't know when. Um, Sling, maybe. Um, but yeah, iTunes and Amazon seem to be the major ones, uh, the major ways to watch it, or just like try, or torrent it, whatever. Do whatever you want. Just watch it and try to get a, a good version of it, I hope. What's the feed on Patreon called? What's your channel there? Yeah, it's patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris, and you can listen to my podcast there. And, and one final thing is uh, this Pam, this guy that I was talking about over the podcast, Ken Nelson, he had published this book. It's been out of print since the early eighties. And I republished it with a new section that tells the story of his discovery of psychedelic toad venom. And it also tells, uh, uh, it has a guide to the sustainable production of 5-MeO-DMT synthetically. So if you happen to live in a country like Canada or Mexico where the synthesis is not explicitly illegal, maybe you could use that guide. If not, it's uh, 
interesting, I think. And you can find that at www.psychedelictoadofthesonorandesert.com. Okay, write Sonora. that down. Write that down. <laughs> it's a, a hell of a URL. Oh, and and no, all the money goes to charity. All the It all goes to Parkinson's disease as well. And it's now raised uh, like $130,000 for the wow. Michael J. Fox Foundation. So it's, you, it's, a, it's a cool book and it's a charitable cause as well. I will buy one and I'm sure the uh, listeners to the show called The Swarm, they will do it as well. Hamilton Morris, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was uh i had high expectations and you uh you surpassed them so thank you for uh being forgiving of the opening and uh no no no, no. I'm, I'm fine with it I'm, I'm totally okay and it was a pleasure talking to you thanks for having me anytime uh don't hang up real quick i just want to talk to you after but uh thank you guys for tuning in thank you johnny thank you xavier guerrero thank you swarm and we'll talk to you guys soon take care we go deep homeboy <laughs> Eric, from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Tim foil hack. Tim foil hack. Tim foil hack.